Please turn with me to the opening chapter of Luke. Luke chapter 1, we'll be looking at Mary's song of praise, her Magnificat this morning. We've seen two beautiful birth announcements. The announcement of the final Old Testament prophet, the one who would herald in the King of Glory, John the Baptist. We've seen the announcement of the Son of God Himself, Christ the King, the Savior of mankind, the Lord of glory. And last week we saw how those two annunciation stories collide in the visit of the two women who would be blessed to carry these children, Elizabeth and Mary. We saw how in that opening scene, it's just nothing but worship. Now, the moment Mary, who has the baby Christ, the, the, the Son of God growing inside of her now, even at the smallest of stages, that upon her voice, John the Baptist, his ministry is inaugurated as he leaps inside of his mother, declaring the King is here, the Messiah has come. And this moves Elizabeth to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And she pours out into praise, uh, uh, just denoting the blessed nature of this situation. How blessed it is that the Lord has come. And the Holy Spirit's contagious. And worship is contagious. And praise is contagious. At least real praise is. And it, the worship doesn't stop. But now this young Teenage virgin, full of fears, concern, and doubts, and probably so many other things. As she has heard these powerful praises, she herself pours forth into a song. The first Christmas song of history. The first Christmas carol ever. The Magnificat of Mary. Let's read it together. Luke chapter 1, verse 46 through 56. And Mary said... My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever. Mary remained with her. That's Elizabeth. About three months, and return to her home. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Mary had just traveled 80 to 100 miles on foot. 14, 15 year old girl. Seems like everything, but that journey was a a lonely one. She was by herself. Perhaps she traveled with a caravan just for the sheer safety of numbers, but it seems to be no family with her. Joseph doesn't seem to go with her. None of that. We we hear none of those details. Just a lonely foot march south to the hill countries of Judah. Now, I don't know about you or your life of how many long journeys you've taken. Perhaps many of you, it's Alaska, so you've probably driven many places far and distance by yourself. I have went on many long marches in my time in the military where we do what's called rut, rut march reminiscing. In a tactical rut march, no talking. It's quiet. And whether it was moving through the hills of Afghanistan or the mountains here of Alaska. A lot of things go through your mind in those quiet journeys. Your mind goes many places, and many places go to your mind. 
something about quiet walking, quiet traveling, that your thoughts can be a great blessing and also a great enemy. I can imagine that as Mary traveled through Israel from Nazareth to the hills of Judah, and you can pull up the city, the map here, she would have passed through many cities, many very important markers of Israel's history that would have only fueled in her heart the realities of the child that she now had growing inside. She would have traveled south down over the, the plain of Esdralon, likely using the route she had probably taken several times with her family as they went down to Jerusalem for the feast. This is what you did in Israel. You pilgrims to the feast celebration. So this is probably a path she's taken many times southward. And all the areas were so full of history. I mean, this area of land is full of history. People call it the Holy Land. It's where people spend lots of money to go do tours there. Lots of history. It's happening in this small geographical region. Out from under the shadows of the western hills, she would have come into a, a full view of the country, being able to look out over the plains and the valleys ahead. She would have been able to see Mount Carmel on the desolate ridge where the prophet Elijah conquered the prophets of Baal. She would have walked past Megiddo, where righteous King Josiah died faithful in battle. She would have passed Jezreel, where Ahab greatly fell into sin. She would have passed by the brook of Kishon, where Deborah sang her song of victory after the defeat of Sisera. Before long, she would arrive at Shechem, where perhaps she paused a moment beside Joseph's grave, or perhaps quenched her thirst from the well of Jacob. From there she would pass Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans worshipped God, and where, in many years from then, her son would tell a woman that it was not about the form of worship or place, but the true worship of God, worshipers of God, worship in spirit and truth. Further south, she would catch a glimpse of Jerusalem, beautiful on the sides of the north, where she would see the golden roofed temple shining in the sun. From there, she would pass by it southward to a little town called Bethlehem. Bethlehem, where she perhaps would have tread the lonely path that goes by Rachel's tomb and would have looked out over the fields where King David once shepherded the flocks as a little boy. A place where just in a few months she would have no idea that she would give birth to the good shepherd, the greater David. Perhaps while she was there, she lingered on uh, the, the realities of Ruth having been brought back by Naomi and there being redeemed by a kinsman, Boaz. She would there have to traverse the hard hills and what's important to note is as you're moving southward, you're moving upward. This is all a climb. This is all elevation going up. And she would have traversed up tired and finally she would have gotten to the top. And she would have been able to look and see the small villages and homes of Hebron where most uh, historians believe that that's where Zachariah and Elizabeth would have lived. And you can imagine the smile that arose in her heart and on her face when she finally saw the finish line. Now, I make no dogmatic claims to know what went through Mary's mind. The scriptures remain silent there. I think the path is pretty obvious one that there's very few that she could have taken, and I think this seems the most likely one. But as we think about the journey, there is no doubt that her heart was fueled by the symbols around her, by the history around her. All of the stories of Israel permeating through her heart as she passed by city and city and saw monument after monument of Israel's story being put forth and unfolded and all of the things God had done for Israel time and time again through them. 
But as she passed through and, and recalled all of these stories, it was only fueling in her heart the reality of what she had just come to know. That all of these stories were a part of a greater story. Of which the child that she now bore was the central character. The central character by which all those other stories, stories pointed to. And, and were meant to create a longing and a hope in the heart of Israel. It was a lonely journey, but I can assure you that much of those thoughts were pressed into her heart, which is why that reality of what she was thinking through about Israel's story and how Christ was the fulfillment, this, this baby was the fulfillment of it, becomes a great means by which we can use and see how to better interpret this song she sings. Because this song that she sings, in many ways, reflects a song from Israel's history. A song we've already heard this morning. This song in so many ways reflects Hannah's song. Hannah's song of praise. As she, we, all, we, we know the story, right? Hannah had no children. She was abused by other women because of it. And she prayed earnestly that God would give her son. God did name that child Samuel. Right? That's the great story. So she praised the Lord. And I, and I want us to, to, to listen to that, story, that, that, that prayer again. You can stay right where you are, though. Because I, I'm going to read the prayer of Hannah one more time. And I want you to look through Mary's Magnificat. Look through her song and realize it's not verbatim. But notice the themes. Notice the parallelism of these song, songs. And so I'm going to read 1 Samuel 2 and just look through Mary's song as you hear the words of Hannah's. Hannah prayed, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down the shield and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, it's not verbatim, but do you see the little expressions? Do you see the similarities, the parallelism throughout this? They both speak in terms of worship, exalting the Lord God of salvation. They speak of God's holy character. They speak of his mercy and his justice, his grace. His provision, his care, his power. But notice the very last statement of Hannah. She prayed, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. I believe that this was a song that Mary had heard and read many times as a young Jewish woman. I think this was one that she had heard countless times and perhaps had sung herself many times. But the reason that I think that it pours out of her mouth so naturally, the reflections of the song of Hannah, is because that last line of Hannah is coming to fulfillment in her child. That baby that she is giving birth to is not just another Samuel. He is the king of kings. He is the anointed one. And that's why this song was the most fitting to sing. No doubt Mary had all this on her mind. And I'm sure it was so heavy upon her heart as she was thinking about all these realities. And then what happened? As soon as she burst into the door of Elizabeth's, Babies are jumping inside of their mothers 
And Elizabeth bursts forth in praise. And she just can't contain herself anymore. She can't hold it back. This tired, wore out young woman cannot restrain her heart. And she pours out into thanksgiving. She says in verse 46 and 47, My soul magnifies the Lord. And in my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. My soul magnifies the Lord. That's where the word magnificat comes from. It's the Latin translation of it. It's a magnification. That's what worship is. It's a magnification of the Lord. Now, what do we mean by magnifying? There's two forms of magnification. It's the way that a microscope magnifies. And a microscope magnifies by taking that which is small and makes it big. And then there's a way that a telescope magnifies. A telescope takes that which is bigger than us and beyond our capacity to see. And it gives us the ability to see it and behold it and put it before our eyes. That's the magnification here. That's what worship does. It takes that which is beyond our capacity to behold. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, it zooms our eyes in. The heart, uh, our heart, our souls, our mind, it zooms it in to behold a, a glimpse of of the glories and magnitude of Christ. Worship is the Hubble telescope of the Christian life. Worship leads us to visions of God that without we can't have. To behold Him. That worship's driven by the Word and fueled by the Spirit. Only through the Holy Spirit can we truly magnify and behold the Lord for who He is. Because in our sinful state, we see God through the wrong end of the telescope. You know what I'm talking about? If you ever try to look through something through the wrong end of binoculars, what does it do? It actually pushes it away. If you take a telescope and you turn it the wrong end, it's actually further, more distant, more uh, skewed than it was even before. That's what sin does to our view of God. It turns the telescope around, and rather than beholding Him in His glory, it actually pushes Him further away and skews our understanding of Him. And what the Holy Spirit does is He comes sovereignly, sovereignly into our life without us knowing in a moment as we've looked and we see God distant and skewed, all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit comes and says, let me help you with this. And he turns the telescope around. For the first time ever, your soul beholds God. And it sees details like never before. And it sees glory like never before. And your heart for the first time ever Screams in worship over the glories that you've now beheld. That's conversion. That's regeneration that happens. The telescope has been flipped. And worship now flows because you have behold. Behold your God. And He has been magnified. And now you want to glorify Him. And all of those details that you have beheld from His Word that the Holy Spirit has made real to you, you want to go and share with everyone else. That's what worship does. Worship is sharing a glimpse of God for others to behold and be moved to magnifying Him as well. It's to say, behold what is seen when you behold the God of glory. That others might catch a glimpse and find the everlasting joy that can only be found in Him. That's what it means to magnify the Lord. To behold Him 
in his glory and goodness and long to make that glory and goodness known to others. That's what worship is all about. The main purpose of all mankind is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that's the heart of Mary's song. Mary's song reveals the chief end of man. My soul magnifies, glorifies, and my spirit rejoices at the God my Savior. Magnification is glory and joy going together. The more I see God, the more my heart joys. They're not disconnected. They're hand in hand. The more you see God, the more all you can do is worship. If you don't worship, it's because you don't see God. A simple summary statement of Mary's Magnificat is this. This is a simple summary statement this morning. Mary mags, magnifies the Lord. Why? For his amazing grace, abundant mercy, perfect justice, and unwavering faithfulness, all of which are fully revealed in her child Jesus. That's what this is all about. And so with that summary statement, let's flesh that out. Let's look through this and see it. Because it says she magnifies the Lord, her soul rejoices, her spirit rejoices in the God of our salvation, and then she starts laying out reasons for it. Four, four, four. She's making an argument in her song. So let's hear why she magnifies the Lord and why we should magnify the Lord. First, Mary magnifies the Lord because of his amazing grace. Verse 46, 49, my my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For, that's the because, right? For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. Mary says that all generations will call me blessed, but it's so important to understand why. Mary at no time sees herself in this song as intrinsically special. She doesn't say, man, I'm so blessed because I'm the best of all the women and I'm the prettiest and I'm the smartest and God just really likes me. Nothing there. No, she says everything about her blessedness comes merely from the fact That God has done great things for her. In other words, all blessedness comes from God's graciousness. You can only be blessed because God is gracious. That's where it comes from. There's nothing intrinsically about you that says, well, I'm blessed because of this. No, you're blessed because of God blessed because of God. Every child you have, every job you've ever had, every dollar you've ever made, God. Every sickness you've ever come, every everything, God. Every blessing you have in your life is not because of how good you are, but because of how gracious He is. In verses 48 and 49, she she makes it clear. He's looked upon my humble estate. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy his name. You see the distinction she makes. Me, humble, lowly. Him, great and mighty. That's where worship begins. Worship begins when I realize I'm here and he's there and yet he has acted towards me. What grace. What grace. Mary's song makes very clear, as does the rest of Scripture. You will never have a right view of God's amazing grace until you first have a right view of yourself. And the more you lift yourself up to God, that grace seems less and less amazing. Well, of course God loves me. Who wouldn't? The more you elevate yourself, well, I did it, I chose it, I'm smart enough, I'm good enough, and God just gave me a little bit there, a little pat on the back along the way. No wonder, God, that you can't sing Amazing Grace with all your heart. Because it's no longer Amazing Grace, 
It's required grace. We put God in debt. No way, Mary says. John Newton was the writer of Amazing Grace. John Newton was a former slave trader who was saved by God, and once he was saved by God, immediately quit it and became one of the greatest abolitionists in English history. And he so often lived in guilt over his past life, and one day he was so eaten by that guilt that it led him to the words of 1 Chronicles 17, 16, which reads, Who am I, O Lord God, my God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And upon those words, he wrote Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. Those words were said by David. The same David who said in Psalm 8, 3, and 4, When I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? Have you seen the images from the new telescope and things like that? They're remarkable. Don't they make you feel small? That's what worship does. Worship shows you how big God is. And it makes you feel small. And as you feel small, that's when you feel love. Because you go, who am I that you're mindful of me? Who am I in my humble estate and lowly estate? That you, God, the one who created all of those things, we look through the Hubble telescope and go, wow! He created every one of them suspended galaxies by his hand. And yet he looked upon us. This is the heart found in Mary when she says, The Lord looked on the humble and lowly state of his servant. This betrothed teenager was a betrothed to a poor carpenter in Galilee in a little village of Nazareth. A nobody in nowhere. And she says, you looked upon me. And she looked upon him, but she is going to be the one to bring forth the Messiah. This is grace beyond all imagination. So no doubt we say, blessed is Mary. How much more blessed can you be? To bring forth, to carry that every kick in your stomach is a constant declaration. God is gracious. Of course she's blessed. Of course we'll call her blessed. This isn't veneration. This is a veneration of God and His graciousness. He had sovereignly chosen Mary, placed His divine favor upon her by appointing her to be the mother of the Savior world, just as much a savior to her as he is us. She doesn't say, Christ, my spirit rejoices in God, my co-mediator. No, she says my savior. Because she was just as much a sinner as you and I are. The only reason she was chosen, the only reason Mary was chosen, brothers and sisters, is because grace and the only reason any of us in this room are here this morning is because of grace. It's grace. It's grace. I don't deserve to be up here any more than anybody else. Probably many of you deserve to be up here more than me. The reason we're here is grace. It's grace. Grace alone. By His grace. God makes a forgotten nobody in the temporal world and turns them into a blessed somebody in his eternal kingdom. That's grace. Praise God that he goes and he chooses to do miracles where men least expect it. In his grace, he chooses the weak to shame the strong. In His grace, He shows His love to the lost, the insignificant, the outcast, the weak, and the broken. And so if that's you this morning, you're in good company. Because we're not here because anybody else. We're here because of God. We're here because of grace. 
Where men say lost, God says found. Where men say no, God says yes. Where men say poor, God says blessed. That's grace. And if you reach the point in your life where you recognize your lowliness, where you recognize your depravity, where you recognize your constant proneness to fail and wonder from God, it's precisely there when God is most near to you. I promise you that where man ends, God begins. And when you are at your lowest, God is at your nearest. He draws near to the brokenhearted. By His grace, we are saved. God has not just done great things for Mary. My friends, He has done great things for everyone in this room. And those great things are seen in the person of Jesus. It was Jesus that moved Mary to sing, God has done great things for me. And that's precisely what Jesus does for every one of us. When we look to Jesus, there's only one song. God has done great things for us. He's done great things for us. And perhaps when you see just how great are the things he's done for you, you'll be far better at counting your blessings than numbering your complaints. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the overflowing well of God's grace. So won't you come and drink of it? Oh, weak and sinful and anxious and fearful and struggling one, won't you come and drink of it? Cast all your anxieties on him. Peter says, because he cares for you. That's the greatest words in the Bible to me, honestly. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Wow. You may think, I don't know if anyone cares for me. God does. My, one of my favorite scenes in the Bible is when Hagar takes Ishmael to the desert. She's been abandoned. She's not even in the covenant line. And God, in remarkable grace, says, I've heard the cries of your child. He'll be great. Go and drink. There was a well for them. Oh, how great he is. How gracious he is. And Mary knew this with all her heart. The question is, do you? Do you know just how gracious he is? My sin is many, but his grace is more. Secondly, Mary magnifies the Lord because of his abundant mercy and perfect justice. Verse 50 through 53. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. Now you're probably asking, wow, Blake, you didn't make this two points? Two separate points? Seems like you're quick to make anything a point that you can sometimes. Well, it's because I want you to understand that mercy and justice actually work together. That they're two sides of ultimately the same coin. It's important that we understand that here's the theological, here's the theological fudge word of the day. God is impassable. What does that mean? It means that God is never given to one attribute over another. That he isn't like, well, I'm loving today, I'm going to be wrathful tomorrow. I'm merciful now, I'm all justice here. God is all of his attributes at one time. And you may think, well, how is that? It's because God is holy, holy, holy. Meaning, He is wholly separate from us. Meaning that His mercy is a fuel and an extension of His justice. His justice is an extension of His mercy. His wrath is an extension of His love. His love is an extension of His wrath. They always are working perfectly together. 
So that God is never one or the other. He is the I am. Not the I am here and I am there. I am. Unchanging. And his mercy and justice work perfectly together. That's what it means when someone says God's impassable. We see the example of this perfect coexistence between the two. So in verse 50, 52 and 53, right? It says he has mercy on those who fear him. Verse 52, he has exalted those of humble estate. Verse 53, he has fed the hungry with good things. That's all mercy. That's mercy. But in the midst of this picture of God's mercy, notice how it's perfectly intermingled with his justice. Verse 51, he scattered the proud and the faults of their hearts. Verse 52, he's brought down the mighty from their thrones. Verse 53, he has sent the rich away empty. Do you see the way that these two notes of mercy and justice come together to create this beautiful chord of divine music? How mercy and justice perfectly flow together, absolutely paralleling and coordinating with one another in divine holiness. So let's just go over some basic biblical terminology and truth. Justice is when God properly gives someone what they deserve. That's justice. When God gives someone what they properly deserve, that's justice. Here's the biblical truth. Everyone deserves justice. Everyone is under God's judgment. So meaning the justice we're going to get is not a good thing for us if God just chooses to give us justice. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin are death. So, if God is just going to give everyone equal justice, we're all in trouble. Okay. Now, every time God chooses to withhold judgment, that's mercy. God withholds judgment, that's mercy. And every time God chooses to withhold judgment and then chooses to give blessing on top of it, that's grace. So, judgment, giving someone what they, or justice, giving someone what they deserve. Mercy, not giving someone what they deserve. Grace, giving someone something they didn't deserve. And it's important we get those right. Because our whole system of salvation is built on that. When God said, I will not hold your your iniquities against you by applying them to my son who died in your place, that was mercy. That brought us to a place of level ground, level footing, right? We were in great debt, sin placed on Christ, He dies as our substitutionary sacrifice. We are now brought to level ground. Great. If we're left there, though, we're done for. Because we will always find a way back down. So we get brought back to level footing. And by the grace of God, he doesn't leave us there with just mercy. But not only does he put our sins on Christ, but he takes Christ's perfect righteousness and puts it into our account. So that now we have an eternal account by which God says justified, forever right, because of the work of Christ. That's grace. So we went from debtors to now inheritors of glory, all because of Jesus. Every step of the way, Jesus. Mercy and grace. And justice is to simply say, apart from Christ, you will get your due reward, which is eternal judgment. Eternal life, the gift of grace, eternal judgment, the perfect justice for those who have rebelled against the eternal God. Do you see how they go hand in hand? And it's important to understand that when God here is talking about these statements of rich and the powerful and the strong and things like that, The reason why this is so important is because in this time when Mary is singing, those were seen as the true blessings of God. If someone's rich, if someone's powerful, then clearly they're under the blessing of God. 
And what this text is really ultimately saying is that God is no respecter of persons. That His justice, mercy, and grace are impartial. I will give mercy to whom I give mercy to. It's impartial. And what it's ultimately saying, and the fact that the low are now exalted, and those which the world redeem are high are brought down, it's showing that this child that Mary's bringing forth is actually turning the world upside down. And if you want to know what a world turned upside down looks like, go read the Sermon on the Mount. Because everything about that kingdom life says that's different from the world. Amen. It's supposed to be. It's supposed to be different from the world. It's supposed to look so radically upside down that the world says, these people are weird. There's a reason why. When Jason and the disciples at Thessalonica were dragged out of their homes, what was the the claim? These men have turned the world upside down. No, they didn't. Jesus did. And they were just following him. It's important to note this is not about financial status. This rich and powerful, it's not about finances. It's not what's being said here. This is about the status of the heart. It's about where does your heart find dependence? Does it find strength? Does it find security? Is it dependent on God or is it dependent on self? And that's why Mary's song makes clear whom the Lord exalts. Those who fear the Lord. Those who fear the Lord. That statement provides the single most important factor for the relationship between God's mercy and God's justice. Mercy is those who fear the Lord. Justice is for those who don't. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, the writer of Proverbs says. In other words, if I don't have that, everything else is ultimately unknowable. Everything else is distant from me. Why? Because any look that I try to glimpse at God apart from the fear of the Lord is looking to the wrong end of the telescope. So then what generates this holy fear? It is a knowledge of God's perfect judgment. Holy fear is produced by the knowledge of God's perfect justice against everyone who has succumbed or falls short of his holy standard. And that's every one of us. That's the clear teaching of the Bible. Because here's the thing. The Bible doesn't give you the right to say, well, look at how you could stack up to others. The Bible says, how do you stack up to Christ? Guess what? You fail. There's your notes. You can cheat on the exam there. What's the standard you're going to be judged by? Not your neighbor. Not your buddy. Not your jacked up brother or sister. Christ. And we're all guilty there. So that's where that first place of holy fear should be there. Like, I don't look nothing like Jesus. So I need help. I need mercy. I need grace. And Mary says that those whom the Holy Spirit has given the eyes to see that state, that spiritual poverty that we have, and to see how we rightly deserve the judgment of God, it's when we get to that place that I only, that I, I, I only deserve the judgment of God. It's there that God meets us with mercy. That's the meeting place of mercy. The recognition of, apart from Christ, I'm undone. I'm done for. And that reverential fear produces the most important words you can ever utter. Lord, I'm a sinner. I've sinned against you. Forgive me. Forgive me. You are my salvation. Change me and forever make me yours. That is the heart of those who fear the Lord. And then it is those who maintain that fearful knowledge every day. That every day I need the new mercy of the Lord. There's never a day where I outgrow my need for God. 
There's never a day I outgrow my need for total, complete dependence on Him. That's what the reverential fear of the Lord is. It's the child that says, without my father, I have no home. I have no clothes. I have no food. I have no protection. Without my father, I am left to die. That's the filial fear of the Lord. That reverential fear of God. That every day I need thee every hour. This is what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So cast aside the spiritual self-sufficiency. The stoic pulling your spiritual self up by your existential bootstraps. Humble yourself before the Lord. For the Lord in His mercy exalts the humble. And His justice, He humbles the proud. Finally, Mary magnifies the Lord because of his unwavering faithfulness. Verse 54 through 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary displays her absolute assurance that this baby growing inside of her was indeed the fulfilled promise to Abraham and the covenant made with him that his offspring would bring blessing to the nation. That this child was the fulfillment of the promise given to Adam and Eve that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And we now see who that woman is. Who the greater is, the greater Eve is in, in the pointing to that. It's Mary. Then Mary gives birth to the one who will bring blessing to all the nations, who will crush the head of the serpent, who will usher in a new humanity, a righteous one. And now we see what Paul meant in 1 Timothy 2 when he talked about women being saved through childbearing. It was that through this generational faithfulness of giving blessing and birth to children and protecting the seed of children through the years that would bring forth the promised one, Jesus, who would bring salvation to all who believe in him. Mary knew that through her faith that all the promises of God revealed from Moses to Malachi were, founding, were finding their yes and amen in that little baby growing inside of her. That child that she now mothered was and is the pinnacle picture of God's unwavering faithfulness. Jesus is the picture of God's unwavering faithfulness. He is faithful and he never goes back on a promise. And if you ever struggle with that in a moment of pain and darkness, Mary's song exists to say, look to Jesus. When you're struggling regarding God's faithfulness and His promises and the fact that He does not lie and He is perfect to bring to pass everything He promised, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. And you will see a picture of unwavering faithfulness. And His faithfulness is towards Abraham and all His offspring forever, we are told. The question is, is who is Abraham's offspring? This is what Paul has to say in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, 28-29. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. So who is this? blessing of unwavering faithfulness to you, it's for everyone in Christ. Because everyone in Christ is the offspring of Abraham. The picture of God's covenantal faithfulness. Meaning, if you're in Christ, you are in the single covenant family of God whose head is Jesus. All the glorious truths of this song are not ultimately just about what God has done. It's about what He is going to do through this promised one in Mary. The Magnificat 
looks backwards only to provide joy of what now lies ahead for Israel, ahead for Mary, and ahead for you and I. The child will usher in a glorious new covenant, a greater kingdom, a permanent salvation, and eternal life. The song makes clear that God's past faithfulness and present faithfulness only serve to establish our hope in His future faithfulness. God does not change. Because of that, neither does His faithfulness. And so, the call is is that when you struggle to see God's faithfulness in the present, look back on the past, and you will see that He has always been faithful before. That when I can't see what He's doing now, to look back and to see what He's already done. And when I can't see ahead, because my, my vision is blinded by the fog of the world. To let the glories of Christ burn through the fog. And say, He is faithful. I need not fear. not concern myself and worry with the world. My Savior is the King. And let that burn away the fog of fear. And promote in your life the fruit of faithfulness. He is faithful so that you and I might be faithful. Hindsight is a great blessing. That when I can't see where I'm going, I can just look back and see what God has already done. And I can rest in His sovereign faithfulness, which is unwavering. The clearest assurance of all of our hope, of all of our salvation, of all of God's faithfulness, is found by turning our eyes to Jesus. Blessed assurance, Jesus is ours. Jesus is the picture of God's covenantal faithfulness, the guarantee of our hope, the certainty of our salvation. And when we look to him, how can we not sing, great is thy faithfulness? Just like Mary did. The scene closes. Verse 56, Mary remained with her about three months and returned her home. Here, Mary decides to leave just as Elizabeth would have been preparing to give birth to John. There's many reasons why she did. Perhaps probably the most likely one was that she just didn't want to be a part of the distraction there as Elizabeth was bringing forth this child who she recognized was going to be the herald as well. Um, or she just it was just time to go back home. Maybe she wasn't aware if Joseph had received the news yet. and Maybe it was through Elizabeth that she felt like she would have the courage finally go and face what was going to happen. I don't know. But we should not fool ourselves and think that this was going to be a simple task for a young teenage girl. We are foolish to think that this was just going to be a walk in the park. And she was just like, all right, I'm good now. No doubt, no worries in mind, no fear. It's only the Lord of glory growing inside of her. She lived in a time where people were shunned and stoned for far less. And here she was, an engaged woman, betrothed woman, pregnant with a baby that doesn't belong to the man that she's betrothed to. What would he do? What would the world do around her? My friends, gossip didn't, wasn't invented last year. Slander wasn't invented last week. And people were stoned and killed for a lot less. But God and his faithfulness had went before Mary and went to Joseph and gave him a vision as well that he would be the stepfather of the Messiah. And through that message, Joseph would ensure to take Mary to himself fully to protect that child and to make sure that nothing would happen to her. Great is his faithfulness. His unwavering faithfulness, amazing grace, abundant mercy, always on display. Mary left Elizabeth's home, ready to face whatever might come her way. With a song of praise in her heart, with the knowledge of God's faithfulness in her mind, with His grace covering her, His mercy uplifting her, and most importantly, with Christ inside of her. Is that how you will leave here today? 
will you leave as one whose soul, whose words, whose life magnifies the Lord? Will you leave with a sense of utter humility, knowing that he exalts the humble and opposes the proud? Will you leave with the ever-present reality of his grace before you, because he has done great things for you, and apart from his grace, we are nothing? Will you leave with the knowledge that his mercy are new towards you every morning, like the precious rain that gives life to the fields? Will you leave with the blessed assurance of his unwavering faithfulness, which stands behind you and goes before you? Will those truths drive you you to greater living for him tomorrow? Next week, three months from now, the rest of your life, the way that they did marry? Or will they simply die with the closing of the service? Most important of all, will you leave with Christ inside of you? Because apart from Him, none of those other things can ever be a reality for you. His grace, His mercy, His perfect justice, His unwavering faithfulness are only found in Christ. And apart from Him, there is none of those other things. There's just sorrow and pain and fear and frustration and failure. Turn from your sin. Turn from self-dependency. Turn from this Western stoicism that has crept into the church that says God gives you a little and you do the rest. God helps those who help themselves. That's wicked. And it's not in the Bible. Our only hope is the help of God. God is not a crutch. He's a lifeline. He's a pulse. He is the main artery of our existence. And you sever yourself from him and you're going to bleed out. Slowly and steadily you'll bleed out. He's not a crutch. He's everything. He's everything. That's Mary's song. Is it yours? Is he everything to you? Your life is not going to change. I can give you 10 steps for better living today. It won't do nothing if God's not your everything. You'll just be a great ethicist, a great moral person, a good figure of society. But you'll be nothing if God's not your everything. So let God be your everything. And all the other things will be added to you. His grace, His mercy, His justice, His faithfulness are perfect. See your everything today. Oh, let it be so, so that your soul may magnify and rejoice in Him. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You for Your Word. Lord, help us magnify You. Help us exalt in You. You have done great things for us. You are so good so perfect, and we are nothing apart from you. Oh God, turn the telescope around that we might behold the glories of your person, that we might see within you all of the intricacies of divine beauty and perfection that moves us to absolute, overwhelming worship because you are so worthy. Oh Lord, whatever we're holding back, Wherever we have limited our view of you this morning, God, cast it aside by your spirit. And let us live with an utter sense that we could lose everything tomorrow. But the only thing that will ever matter for eternity is do we have you? You are our everything. Does our life reflect it? Does our schedule reflect it? Does our home life reflect it? Does our desires reflect it? Does our complaints and nagging and frustrations, do they reflect that you are everything? You have done great things for us and you are worthy of praise. Wherever there's a disconnect, God, give us a vision. 
Give us a wisdom how to get it away, a discernment to cut off that which is, whole, which is causing us to not live in light of your glory and to live so that everyone around us can be absolutely clear that our souls magnify you and that you are our everything. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.